And let me ask you, if you will, please, to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 11. As we continue our study through the gospel according to Mark, we saw last week Jesus enter into Jerusalem for his final week of life on earth. And in this particular section, Mark, verses, Mark chapter 11 to 13, we see the showdown that Jesus has with the temple itself. You'll notice that theme, the temple, keeps coming up over and over again, and, and we'll see that in the next coming weeks. This morning we look at Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 25, and we see that Jesus is looking for fruit. Please follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 25. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, And began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time that we have now to study your word, and we know that we need your help to do that, especially as we come to a passage that seems to be um, shocking in some ways and confusing in other ways. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us now, that you, your spirit would be our teacher. We ask that you would give us eyes to see the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that you would give us minds that would fix our interest and fix our attention on you. Lord, your word is the very revelation of who you are. So may this not just be a time to sit and listen to someone talk, but may this be a time when we sit and we listen to you. Say what you have to say to us, Lord. We believe what you say, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know what it's like to be expecting something 
and then go to find it and it not be there. Summertime is coming upon us, isn't it? It seems that it's here already. Perhaps you've never had this experience like I have. Probably happens far too often for me. But let's say summertime comes and the day is hot, the temperature is high, the sun's been beaming down on you all day, and you know when you get home, you've got that special treat waiting for you in the freezer. That ice cream that you carefully positioned in the proper place to maintain the right temperature so that when you opened it and ate it, it was exactly what you wanted it to be like. I know you can't relate to that, but but go with me. You go home after that hot day and you reach into the freezer only to discover that what you expected to be there, the thing that you craved, the thing that you desired, was gone. It wasn't there. How would you respond in that moment? Well, perhaps you wouldn't curse the freezer like Jesus cursed the fig tree, but it would get to you, wouldn't it? The passage that we come to this morning is a passage that many people have a difficult time with because some have said it was a waste of Jesus' power to curse a tree that they say he knew didn't have any figs on it. Others, such as Bertrand Russell, who was not a Christian and wrote a book called Why I Am Not a Christian, included this passage as one of the reasons he was not a Christian. And of course, you fast forward to our present day and you see people who worship trees and hold on to creation far too much come to a passage where Jesus curses a fig tree and they think to themselves, no way would Jesus ever do that. But what we have in this passage is yet another what what scholars call, very scholarly-like, Markand Sandwich. You see, as I read the passage, you could hear it. There was the fig tree at the beginning, and then what was at the end of the passage? The fig tree came back up. But then in the middle of the passage, sandwiched in there, like the the nourishing truth that we are supposed to get, is the whole point of the story. That when the king of glory rode into Jerusalem in last week's passage, just the day before this, He was greeted by the shouts of Hosanna. He was greeted by his proper name, the son of David. He was escorted into the holy city. And where did he go? He went to the temple. He went to the very heart of Israel. Not just of their worship, but the heart of their entire lives. And as you remember from verse 11, Mark tells us a smaller portion than what the other gospel writers tell us, Mark tells us that what Jesus did when he went into the temple was have a look around. And then because it was late, Mark tells us that he and the disciples went back to Bethany to get a good night's sleep. As we talked about last week, what the son of man, what the son of David, what the king of glory was doing was investigating what he would find at Israel's heart. What Jesus wanted to find, what Jesus should have found, 
was fruit-filled worship that was meant not just for Israel, but as the passage that Les read for us, and as you know, as a bunch of Gentiles, was to be fruit for the whole world. Israel was not to be a barrier to the worship of God, but a light to the nations, a city set on a hill. And yet when the king of glory comes to inspect, when the Messiah himself visits the temple, what he finds is so disappointing to him, it enrages him so that he doesn't just clear the temple, but he curses and condemns the temple and he prophesies that the temple is all done in the economy of God's plan of salvation. And so as we look at this particular passage dealing directly with the people of Israel, and in that particular time, most especially as Isaiah 56 referenced, as, as the prophets always referenced, most especially aimed at the leadership of Israel, because it's always the leadership that steers the plane. The leadership of Israel has steered the people into gross idolatry and sin. And so as we look at this passage, I think that we can take Jesus' desire to see fruit there in the temple and think about his desire to see fruit here in us. So that we don't make the mistake of thinking this was something that happened in the past that really doesn't have a whole lot to do with us. We'll come to understand, such as in passages like John 15 In the letters to the churches of Revelation, that what Jesus expected to see in Israel, he continues to expect to see in his people. The reality is that when the the seed of the gospel takes root in your heart, it will bear fruit. And so let's follow this story. And I think that as we do follow this story, we'll learn three lessons that help us examine our own walk with Jesus. We'll look at what happened then, and then we'll, we'll see what those principles have to do with us right here, right now. The first lesson that we learn that helps us to examine our own walk with Jesus is in verses 12 to 14, and we see it as this. Jesus curses the unfruitful. Jesus curses the unfruitful. We have, as Mark has already made clear, we have Jesus and his disciples having gone back to Bethany in verse 12. They set out that next morning on their way to the temple, back to observe the week before Passover, back to fellowship with God and with one another. And Mark tells us as they were going the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now, unless you're a fig farmer, which I am not, but I do know how to read about fig farming. Unless you're a fig farmer, this doesn't make any sense to you whatsoever, because you see twice mentioned that this tree had leaves on it, right? And then you see Mark explaining to us, those of us who don't live in that region, that it's not the season for figs, and you left going, well, why would Jesus curse a tree when it wasn't even time for it to bear figs in the first place? Aha. Let me read to you what one commentator says, because 
He explains it better than me. He says, after the fig harvest from mid-August to mid-October, the branches of fig trees sprout buds that remain undeveloped throughout the winter. These buds swell into small green knops known in Hebrew as pagim, or first fruits, which is a Hebrew word that's used throughout the, the prophets to emphasize what God should find in his people. And it was common for them to eat the pagim, to eat the first fruits, to eat the little knops. Even though they weren't the full fruit, the full ripened version of the fruit, they could still eat them as they walked. So he says, these buds swell into small green knops known in Hebrew as pagim in March to April, which was when Jesus and his disciples would have been passing by this tree, followed shortly by the sprouting of leaf buds on the same branches, usually in April. The fig tree thus produces fig knops before it produces leaves. Once a fig tree is in leaf, one therefore expects to find branches loaded with pagim in various stages of maturation. In other words, Mark emphasizes that this tree has leaves because he wants you to understand that what comes before the fig tree gets leaves is the pagim, is the little knops that you could actually eat, although it's not the fall when the full ripened version of the fig is available to you. You see, Jesus sees a leafy tree, which Mark totally emphasizes. It's sticking out like a sore thumb in the middle of the desert, and he sees it, and he's hungry, and he goes to it, and he expects, because it has leaves, because it has the form of fruit-bearing, it should have fruit so that he can fill his hungry stomach with them. But what he actually finds is all leaf, no fruit. What is his response then to that finding? He curses it. Verse 14, he says to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. You see, this is a problem that we likely have around here as we have so many different fruit trees, right? When a fruit tree is supposed to bear fruit, but it stops bearing fruit, what is that fruit tree good for? Firewood. You dry it out, you cut it up, you dry it out, and then you smoke your meat with it and get the cherry taste or the pear taste or something like that. We can talk to Ross about that. That's all it's good for, right? So Jesus sees this tree that's supposed to bear fruit like God intended it to do, but it doesn't bear fruit like God intended it to do. So what he does is curse the tree because it's already not doing what God intended it to do in the very first place. But notice what Mark highlights for us just as a sort of passing by phrase, and his disciples heard it. You remember what Jesus has been doing in this section, uh, really since he's called the disciples, but especially in this section after, after that final rejection from the Pharisees, that final test from the Pharisees, Jesus turned away from the crowds and he focused on teaching his disciples, right? It's no coincidence that Mark says his disciples heard it. They were supposed to hear it because this was the picture that set up what Jesus was about to do in the temple. 
Notice how quickly Mark gets to, and, and this is kind of merging into the second point here, so I won't spill the beans too much. But notice in verse 15 how quickly Jesus gets down to business in the temple. They came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. Mark has it as though Jesus walks in and bam, it's action time, it's go time. Why? Because what he saw the night before enraged him, but he didn't have enough time because it was about to get dark and he needed to make a public scene so that verse 18 could happen. The chief priests and the scribes could begin to conspire how to kill him that week. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, especially with the prophets, then you know that this is a common thing that the prophets would do. They would do something that would grab the attention of the people and then they would use that picture in order to illustrate a point, right? What's the point of this beautiful leafy fig tree that doesn't have any fruit? The point is that Israel's temple was this beautiful, glorious building that was dead on the inside. That's the point. The fig tree throughout the prophets is often symbolic of the nation of Israel, either to represent what God expects to find, fruit on it, or to illustrate God's pronouncing of judgment or his cursing of Israel, that he's going to take away their fruit bearing. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 8, verses 8 to 13. Jeremiah 8, 8 to 13. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to conquerors. Because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. You see, it's not just Jesus throwing a temper tantrum over a tree. We know Jesus had no sin in him, neither did he commit any sin. And so we also know trees are just the creation of God. And so the prerogative of the creator is that he can do whatever he pleases with his creation. And what Jesus pleased in that moment, to do in that moment, was to find a tree that looked as though it should have had fruit but didn't have any fruit. Pronounce a curse on that tree so that his disciples would hear it So that when they saw him go into the temple and wreak havoc on the temple, they would one day look back after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and go, oh, now we get it. 
So that then when AD 70 came and Rome rode in and destroyed the temple, leveling it, leaving nothing behind, not only Jews, but Christians would understand, oh, we get it. God does not meet with man in a geographical location anymore. Instead, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. God meets with man now in the mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. That's the point. You see, all the Jews ever knew, and of course this was all they ever knew, but all they ever knew was that the heart of their worship was God, and it began, his presence began with them to dwell in a tabernacle, and then after David wasn't allowed to build something better, Solomon built this wonderful, gloriously beautiful temple that was then destroyed by Babylon because of the people's wickedness. But then the exiles were let go in order to go and rebuild the temple, and we had Zerubbabel's temple rebuilt. But if you remember the story from Ezra, the people, the older people who had remembered seeing Solomon's temple, as they now looked at Zerubbabel's temple, what did they do? They wept because it was pathetic. But then you fast forward to this temple, Herod's temple, and it was awesome. such a architectural wonder. You could see the gold reflecting from miles away. People would come. It was a popular place, and it was the very heart of Israel's worship. And so when the disciples are going there, no doubt they're excited to get there. But then as they follow Jesus, as he teaches them over and over again that what the key to life is, is not found in a location, is not found in a place, will no longer be found in the temple, but is now found in the one who died for their sins and rose from the grave and ascended back to heaven and will come again one day to get his people. That's why they heard it. Because they were supposed to. We've been following the disciples as they bumble their way after Jesus, just as, as we do. The jury is still out, as you know. We, we know the full story by God's grace. Only one of them produced no fruit and fell away and betrayed Jesus. But the jury's still out on whether or not the disciples will produce the type of fruit that Jesus spoke about in Mark chapter 4 when he told them the parable of the sower. Jesus wants them to understand that he expects fruit to be found in their lives and he curses unfruitfulness. Well, my friends, the reality is Jesus expects that very same thing from you and I. You remember John chapter 15. In fact, why don't we just flip over there real quick. John chapter 15, and and we could certainly go to Paul's explanation of the fruit of the Spirit. The the idea of fruitfulness and fruit bearing is all over the Scriptures. And yet when you think about today's landscape and when you think about when you think about how we tend to, and and I hope I'm not getting overly nitpicky and being a 
a fruit inspector in a wrong type of a way. But when you think about when we talk about Christianity and we talk about people, we tend to go to things like, well, they say they're a Christian. Or we go to things like, well, they, they prayed a prayer. They've been baptized. I mean, I can't really explain why they're living the way they're living now, but, but they say they're a Christian, so I guess they're a Christian. But let's look at John chapter 15, verses 1 to 8 together. Jesus, again, is teaching his disciples, and in fact, it was in that week that he was teaching them. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it, be, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. We get the point, right? Jesus says the only way you will prove to be one of his disciples, the only way that you will glorify the Father is if you bear fruit. Jesus says that if you do not bear fruit, then what will happen to you is that you'll be cut off You'll be thrown out to wither. You'll be gathered together. You'll be thrown into the fire. Jesus says that the only way to abide in him, the only way to bear fruit rather, is to abide in him. But he also says that as we abide in him, his words must abide in us. God is serious about his responsibility to keep his people. He will hold us fast. But as a fruit of being his people, God is serious about his expectations that we have his words abiding in us. So the question for us, as we look at this unfruitful fig tree, the question for us is, are we abiding in Jesus and are his words abiding in us? Now, I want to warn you that you can, you can beat yourself up over that question. I want to remind you that you need a foundation upon which to stack that question. It's your justification. What makes you right with God? What makes you right with God is not whether you abide in Jesus and his words abide in you. That's your sanctification. Your justification is Jesus. And from your justification flows your sanctification. In other words, 
if the Holy Spirit of God has planted the seed of the gospel in your heart, you will abide in Jesus and his words will abide in you. It probably won't happen as much as you want to, but when you realize that it doesn't happen as much as you want to, repent. Realize that Jesus is better than whatever else you're giving your attention to. Realize that your own mind and your own flesh don't see things rightly until they see things through the lens of Scripture. Realize that the only thing, the only one that truly brings you delight is God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Let your soul hunger and thirst for him because that is the only thing that will satisfy. He is the only one that can ever eternally satisfy you both now and forever. So don't beat yourself up, but honestly ask yourself, do I abide in Jesus and do his words abide in me? And if you find that that's lacking, confess it to God and get on with your sanctification on the basis of your justification, the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you find that you have no basis of justification, if you find that Jesus is not yours, then right here, right now, cry out to him for his mercy. Why wait? Why build your life on anything else? Why build your life on what you would try to do, your own spiritual accomplishments, even if they're what God says to do? Why would you build your life on that when the reality is all you're doing is building your house on the sand? Build it on Jesus, my friend. He is the only foundation strong enough for you to hold you up. And he will hold you up. So first lesson, Jesus curses unfruitfulness. Second lesson, Jesus condemns the unfaithful. Jesus condemns the unfaithful. We pick it back up in Mark chapter 11, verse 14. With Jesus and the disciples coming into the temple, verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. First of all, Jesus does business in the temple and he does business by driving out the people who were not supposed to be there in the first place. I think verse 17 especially helps us to understand what's going on here, but let's sort of work our way through this. He comes into the temple and immediately he drives out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, meaning most likely what was going on as the Sadducees were the ones who controlled the temple commerce, most likely those who sold, sold unjustly. And the money changers, people would come with their own coins. Most of them had Roman coins because they were under Roman rule. And on a Roman coin stood the inscription of, guess who? Caesar. And the Jews were not allowed to participate in temple worship with a coin that had an image on it. And so in order to pay the temple tax that every male had to pay when they went to the temple, they had to exchange their money, their Roman money, for money that did not have an image on it. 
And so one of the practices that Israel was condemned for in the Old Testament was unjust weights and balances. In other words, you put your Roman money on this side of the weight and they've manipulated the scale a little bit to, so that they don't have to give you quite as much money without an image on it. Probably that was going on, but you'll notice Jesus drives out those who sold and those who bought. And then in verse 16, he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything. The word anything is, could be a vessel. It's sort of a generic word. So it could be that the people were perhaps using the court of the Gentiles, which was the outer court of the temple. This outer court, the court of the Gentiles, was 35 acres big. It was huge. And at this time, it was probably filled with hundreds of thousands of people. This was a huge, huge operation. And this was a huge, huge week in Israel's life. But it was also a huge week in the commerce of the temple. Which is why the chief priests and the Sadducees and the scribes, why they got so, got so riled up. Because Jesus has put a dent in their prophet. And he has interrupted their false worship. He wouldn't let anybody carry anything, but like I said, I think verse 17 best explains why Jesus was so mad. Verse 17 says, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, and this is from Isaiah 56, 7, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And then Jesus sandwiches Isaiah 56, 7 with Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. He says, but you have made it a den of robbers. Why was Jesus so upset? Because they took holy things and holy ground and did unholy things on them. Rabbinical history teaches us that before this time, all of this commerce, all of this buying and selling, you imagine you're, you're traveling from Galilee, you're traveling from somewhere other than Jerusalem, you usually don't bring your animal that you're going to sacrifice for a number of reasons. You're, you need to feed it if you're going to bring it. But then also, if you travel a very long distance with that animal and something happens to it, it gets a blemish of some kind, it, it stubs its little animal toe on a rock or something like that, then you can't use it anymore. It has to be without spot, without blemish. So it's better instead of bringing your animal to buy it there. It was normal. The buying and selling this exchange was absolutely normal. There was nothing wrong with it. But it was happening in the wrong place. So rabbinical history says what, this, what was taking place here used to take place on the Mount of Olives. But perhaps Annas and Caiaphas decided that they would move it a little bit closer into the temple grounds itself. You know, we just want to make our religion easy. We'll make it more convenient for the worshipers. But then also, maybe we can bag a little bit bigger profit if we you know, kind of construct this thing in the temple itself. But you'll notice what Jesus focuses in on. They were doing the wrong thing in the wrong place, but notice what he says that the temple was intended by God to be. He says it's supposed to be a, a house of prayer for all the nations. All the nations? Now, 
in the outer court of the Gentiles, the court that you would first walk into. This was the court where Solomon's colonnade, Solomon's portico was, where we see the believers in the book of Acts first gathering together to have their worship services in the temple, which was a bold move. Between that outer area, was, which was the last place the Gentiles could go, Gentiles could come into the court of the Gentiles, which is why it was called that, but they could not go any farther into the sanctuary itself. On one of the walls, there was an inscription on that, on that sanctuary wall just before the court, or just after, sort of in between the court of the Gentiles and the rest of the sanctuary, and it read this. No foreigner may enter within the railing and and enclosure that surround the temple. Anyone apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. In other words, if you were a foreigner, a Gentile, and you chose to walk from the court of the Gentiles into the sanctuary, you took your life into your own hands, they would kill you just as soon as they found you. And yet, what what does Jesus say it was supposed to be? a house of prayer for all the nations. Israel's understanding at this time was that their Messiah would come and he would drive out all the Gentiles, all the nations. He would get rid of everybody who wasn't Jewish. And instead, what does the Messiah say he's going to do? Instead of drive out the nations, he's going to compel the nations to come in. You see, God never did want to only save Israel. He was just using them as a light to the nations. Jesus adds on Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11, as I mentioned, which I think helps explain why he has such a problem. This is what it's supposed to be, Israel, but this is what you've made it, a den of robbers. It's the place where the robbers go and hang out after they've done their work. And who most especially was this aimed at? The leaders. Listen to the full context of Jeremiah chapter 7. So that is a quote from Jeremiah 7.11. Let me read to you Jeremiah 7.1-11 because this gets a picture of Israel's problem all throughout their history. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. In other words, they thought this is the temple of the Lord. Nothing's going to happen here. We'll come back to that. Verse 5, for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave you of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house 
which I called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. That's how verse 11 finishes of Jeremiah 7. What did Jesus do the night before this in the temple? He went to see it. So that when the prophet says, Behold, I, have, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Not only did he see it in those days, but this is what Jesus saw. You see, it's, it's nice and leafy and shiny. It looks as though it should have fruit on it, but the reality is it's totally lifeless. Friends, here's the reality. Our lives could be the very same thing. They said, the temple, the temple, the temple, we're safe as long as the temple's here. And in fact, they used to use the temple in the days of the Maccabees, they used to use the temple to hide the zealots who committed crimes in the area. The temple, the temple, we're safe. We might not have a temple as Christians, but how many times do we appeal to something in the past that we bank our safety on instead of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ right here, right now, in the present? You see, you can't, you cannot trust in anything that you do to show whether or not you're a Christian. But instead, what you must trust is everything that Jesus has done. You've got to recognize your own spiritual bankruptcy. You have not and you never will do anything that is fully pleasing to God. But here's the good news. Jesus has not and he never will do anything that is not pleasing to God. And so here's the question. Are you in him or not? You see, this unfaithfulness that Jesus condemns is still a problem today, is it not? Do we think that we could hold on to our sin and then come on a Sunday morning and just expect to to worship the Lord without any consequences whatsoever? Do we think that we could live however we want, whenever we want, but just sort of clean it up and get it together whenever we're around other Christians? Of course not. Flip over to Revelation. chapter. Actually, don't flip there because we're running low on time. Let me just read it to you. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Jesus' word to the church in Sardis. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. 
If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What an awful thing to have Jesus say to you. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Now, I'm not implying that Jesus is saying that to anyone here today. But the truth is, I don't know. But you know the good news to the church in Sardis? He gave them an opportunity to repent, didn't he? He didn't say, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead, so I'm going to put you in the ground, you wicked church. No, he said, repent and do the works that you did before. But he did warn them, there's an expiration date on your repentance. So friends, I have no idea what's going on in your personal lives. I have no idea what's going on in your hearts. But Jesus does. And if there's something that is unfaithful to him, you need to repent. And the good news is you can. You can. Do you not remember that that sin that you're holding on to has already been paid for at the cross? Let it go. Turn away. See that Jesus is better. It wasn't unfaithfulness, wasn't just a, an AD 30 to 33 problem. Unfaithfulness is the sinner's problem. But Jesus, the faithful one, the only faithful one, stands with arms open wide to anyone who would recognize their unfaithfulness and and simply come to him. But how do the leaders respond to his teaching and what he has to say? Verse 18 says, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. The chief priests and the scribes cared more about what people thought than what God thought. And that will always get you into trouble. And verse 19 simply says, and when evening came, they went out of the city. Jesus wreaks havoc, he teaches, and then he leaves. Meanwhile, the chief priests and the scribes go on with their plot that will culminate in his crucifixion. So Jesus curses the unfruitful, Jesus condemns the unfaithful, and finally, Jesus calls for fruit in verses 20 to 25. I'll go a little bit more quickly, I promise. Verses 20 to 25, we pick it up as they pass by in the morning. So they went home, they got a good night's sleep, maybe, though Jesus probably spent a lot of time praying. And now they're on the road the next morning, walking back to the temple. And what do they see? They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Peter's surprised to see that it actually worked. I think I would have been too. 
In verse 22, Jesus begins to teach them what he wants them to understand. That what he should have found when he went to the temple was faith and prayer and forgiveness. And what Jesus should find when he looks at his disciples, you and I and them, is faith and prayer and forgiveness. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Which is such a Jesus-y thing to say. Right? I mean, like, you read that and you go, wait a second, have faith in God. Like, all right. I I mean, I I know I need to have faith in God, but like, we were just talking about this tree. How did you get from this tree to have faith in God, Jesus? That's because that's what he wanted to see in the very first place. Peter was surprised that the curse of Jesus actually worked because he was still, although he confessed Jesus as the Messiah, he still didn't totally get it. So Jesus uses the opportunity, he says, have faith in God. When Jesus went to inspect the temple, what did he want to see? Faith in God. What is the only thing that pleases God from humanity? Faith. That's it. Because you'll never get enough holiness to be holy. You'll never have enough faithfulness to be pleasing to God. You'll never have enough anything unless you're in Christ and you have all that he is credited to your account even though you did none of it. And how do you obtain that? You believe. You believe the earth-shattering truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he welcomes sinners who are sinners all by faith. So he says, have faith in God. And then, of course, he attributes faith to prayer. Why? Because prayer is the clearest expression of faith. Why do you pray? Because you believe you need something you can't do for yourself. Why do you pray to God? Because you believe that God can do what you cannot do. Which is why Jesus talks about moving a mountain. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, perhaps talking about the Mount of Olives, perhaps talking about the Temple Mount, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. This is what the Puritans would call believing prayer. Not just prayer, but believing prayer. And you remember, Jesus has already taught his disciples how to pray. And how are they supposed to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So you need the lens of what Jesus teaches about prayer in order to understand that he's not saying that God is a genie who will give you anything you want. Which just smashes the prosperity gospel, doesn't it? I mean, reality smashes the prosperity gospel. But so does Jesus. He's not saying, you know what? God is all about giving you what you want. You ask for it, he's going to give it. But if you don't believe hard enough, then he's not going to give it. But, you know, if you just sow some seed money into my ministry, then that'll help you. That's the very same thing that the scribes and the Pharisees were doing. 
you remember even that in just a few days from now, Jesus will be in the garden of the Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood and praying. And what does he pray? Father, take this cup away from me, yet not what I will, but what you will be done. Even Jesus himself asks for something, but the Father says no. Because even Jesus himself, the very Son of God, desired the will of God, even above his own human will in that moment. And that's the key to understanding what he wants. Remember, these, the disciples are following Jesus, right? Every request for prayer needs to be under the, with the understanding that is, is within the will of God doesn't mean you can't ask for things. When you pray, swing for the fences. Seriously. But be content with the will of God. Because that's what's going to happen anyways. Jesus uses the mountain to illustrate that what's impossible with man is possible with God. And isn't that what he told the disciples right after the rich young ruler? Chapter 10, verses 26 to 27, and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Jesus isn't saying, hey, if you just believe hard enough, God's going to do a cool parlor trick. He'll pick that mountain up and he'll throw it into the sea so that you can show all your friends how awesome he is. Because it's not about signs. It's about the one the sign points to. Jesus is saying, when you trust God and you pray in accordance with his will, God will do things that you can't even see coming. How do you think you got saved? Because God did things that you couldn't see coming. How do you think our loved ones will get saved? Those that we continue to pray for, how do you think they'll get saved? Because we don't stop asking God to save their souls. And God will do whatever he wills to do. And his way is right. But Jesus teaches that prayer must accompany faith. It is the the first fruit of faith itself. And then he teaches them about forgiveness. Verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive For if you have anything against anyone, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. And you may have a a footnote, or your, your Bible may include verse 26. Most likely, verse 26 was added later by scribes to reflect the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 15, which is the the Lord's Prayer, where he does finish the Lord's Prayer with something like verse 26. But here, most likely, this passage ended at verse, or this section ended with verse 25. And Jesus wants us to understand that if you have an unforgiving heart, you won't receive forgiveness from God. That's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? And we might quickly run to our theology and say, well, come on, if I'm elect... But do you know why Jesus talks about forgiveness? Why he talks about faith? Why he talks about prayer? Because that is the fruit that happens in your life when the gospel takes root. You may struggle to forgive, but when you think about how much you've been forgiven by God, does does anything else compare to that? 
And that's where the Christian mind stays. God has forgiven me so much. How could I possibly not forgive this person? And so he wants us to understand that if you expect to have anything from God whatsoever, you must not, you cannot have unforgiveness in your own heart. This is the fruit that Jesus calls for. Mark chapter 4, the parable of the sower, has already made it clear that not only is Jesus looking for fruit, but the gospel of Jesus Christ produces fruit. We understand as we look through the, Old Te- the, the New Testament rather that what our Lord wants to see is us bearing fruit. So then I close with this question. As Jesus looks at your life, does he find the fruit that he is looking for? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you for your righteousness and your justice. We thank you that you are truth and you speak truth. We recognize, Lord, that sometimes truth is a hard pill to swallow. But as we think about what's true of us, Lord, I would ask that you would help us not to look at ourselves for very long. But as we look to ourselves, we would look away very quickly and look to you, the one who is constantly bearing fruit, and the one in whom, if we abide, we too will bear fruit. Lord, let us not get hung up on our sins. We want to acknowledge our sins. We need to be convicted if there is any sin. That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. But we would ask that your Spirit would very quickly help us to preach the gospel to ourselves. That when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all righteousness. That it's your will that we would not sin, but if we do sin, we have an advocate with God the Father. So Jesus, our defense attorney, stand in our place and pronounce us, because of your payment, innocent. Help us to walk in the light of the gospel, we ask, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.